0: If you give us money, we will send you pictures of John with his clothes on so you don't have to see him <sighs> naked. <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: <sighs> <sighs> yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like
1: simplicity and I like it to be very couples. clean. All acted very similarly. The matching couples. Oh my so lord, strange. I hate the matching couples.
0: Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking
1: one. Like right, that. but that's not accurate. You have weird taste. Those are all things that most of us could really improve this on. gonna,
0: going to vary wildly if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting.
1: No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. Oh.
0: What's on your mind this week? <laughs>
1: uh, I've been annoyed by something.
0: Oh. I have a peeve. Can I be peeved by how often you are peeved about things?
1: Yeah, <laughs> sure. Is that legitimate peeve? Yeah, no, that's, that's legit.
0: Okay, so what's the peeve?
1: I heard recently, well, I've read recently, I was reading kind of some of the platform of the opposition Labour Party in the UK. And mm-hmm. it's a long story, but essentially one part of their platform is that they want to move a number of industries back into the public sector. They want to nationalize them again. Right. And they talk about democratizing these industries. Mm -hmm. This is just the most recent occurrence of me hearing democratizing things. Mm -hmm. This usage of that word that I find extremely frustrating because you hear this all the time with the internet democratizing information and right you hear this with bitcoin is supposed to democratize finance Mm -hmm. and cryptocurrencies are supposed to do that right i get what they're trying to say but what they're trying to say Mm -hmm. is it's going to make it distributed or it's going to make it diffuse or something
0: well john one of the definitions of of democratization is making something accessible to everyone.
1: I, I guess maybe I just don't understand the word deeply enough, but I don't understand how right. that's a definition. That's not a definition that I understand. Democratize is when you take something that is not democratic and you make it democratic, right? That's what it is mm. to democratize something.
0: Well, maybe it's because like a democracy is something of the people or the people or whatever.
1: Well, right. And this is the exact problem. This goes to a deeper complaint that I have about the way uh-huh. people talk about things. Like when people talked about the Cold War, People constantly talked about communism versus democracy. Right. But that was not the issue. The communists were just as against fascists as they were against the liberal democracies. Their problem was capitalism. It was a conflict between Mm. capitalism and communism. Right. It's not a a conflict between democracy and communism. People love democracy. Democracy Mm -hmm. is really popular. And so people always use democracy as this thing that we're bringing to the world. But when you're talking about creating a distributed system, where now instead of having centralized control like the internet, right? Right. Instead of having completely Mm -hmm. centralized control, different people can have websites, different people can do things without somebody controlling distribution. Right. That's not democratized. Nobody can vote somebody out and say, oh, we don't like these guys' page, so we're going to vote it off the internet. That's not a thing. Mm -hmm. Democracy involves distributed control that enforces things upon other people. Right. And so this use, it just grates on me all the time because it's just using democracy when democracy is not actually what's happening. It's just using this term that people really like. You know what I mean?
0: I do. I do.
1: This always annoyed me, like I was saying, with the communism versus democracy thing, where the the thing that makes Western democracies powerful is not democracy as much as it is capitalism. You know, And the thing that right. destroyed communism is the fact that they're not responsive to the people. Right. It's the central planning aspect of it. It's the lack of capitalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at China right now, China's being relatively successful, hugely successful, most people would say. Because they've mm-hmm. embraced capitalism, not because they've embraced democracy. Like, democracy is not the issue at hand. All right, that's fair.
0: I can see why that would
1: upset you. It's just annoying when people, like... Don't give credit where
0: credit is due.
1: It, it feels very much like people are misusing words. Because I guess people understand right. the definition that you're talking about, where they're saying democratizing right. something it makes it available to everyone. But that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's not what I democracy suppose.
0: is about. I mean, kind of, isn't it? It gives everyone, like, a say or... A vote?
1: Yeah, it gives everyone a say. There is a similarity there. Mm -hmm. So I get what people are saying. But democracy fundamentally means that you have the rule of the majority, and they get to make the rules. But when you're talking about making something distributed, it has one part of democracy in that everyone is allowed to participate, but it doesn't have the other part because Mm -hmm. it doesn't have that control aspect. It's governed. Like these distributed systems, like when you're talking about Bitcoin, well, Bitcoin kind of is democratic in a certain respect because... The miners can vote, but when you talk about like the internet, the internet is governed by kind of totalitarian rules from the U.S. government, right? Like, there, they're, it's right. not, it's not controlled by the users. Democracy would imply that they have some sort of control over how internet protocols work, and they don't. People have no control over that. They just can use it freely.
0: I suppose that's true. Maybe that's what it is: being able to use it freely. That access to it somehow correlates to democracy.
1: Yeah, but democracy implies control that's the whole point of democracy that not only does everyone have a participatory role but everyone as a whole has control that's not what's involved in this i suppose you're right i don't know maybe it's just that the term is ambiguous and that's the issue but i find the term grates on me whenever people use it it's one of those buzzwords that people love to use all the time because they're making the world a better place
0: right but sometimes words have meanings tacked off to them that stick and in this case maybe it's just stuck it's just yeah part of the word now. No, that's true. And, You're right. And as annoying as it may be to you, <laughs> you just gotta roll with it, man. But
1: don't you feel that there's something lost when you add a definition to something that contradicts the fundamental definition or the original definition? For instance, if I was going to say, like, if I was going to go to a country, like when the United States invaded Iraq, right? They wanted to democratize Iraq. They wanted to bring democracy to Iraq. Well, does that just mean that everyone now has access or are you talking about actually providing democracy to the government? Suddenly, it's an ambiguous term. When you're talking about Bitcoin, as we talked about, the miners vote on the protocol and they can change it if enough people agree. Well, that actually has a component of democracy to it. When you're talking about other things that don't have that component of control... Now there's mm-hmm. this ambiguity. I feel like when, you're, when you have words that are very clear and very precise and you add ambiguity by changing the definition or adding an additional definition, right. it degrades our ability to communicate with it effectively.
0: But I mean, with regards to Iraq, I mean, I guess allowing people to decide on their government does kind of give them access to what's going on that maybe they didn't have before.
1: Like it's decentralized, so, right? So you're talking about yeah. making something less centralized. So that part is similar. But then there's this other side of the definition that is just kind of flimsily ignored. And it's an important part of democracy, right? Like, if you had capitalism without a democracy, it would be very different. We wouldn't have control. We would still have access to markets. We would still have the rule of right. law, perhaps. Like, if you lived under a monarchy, you don't you don't have the same control right. and power as citizens. Maybe. It, it, it bothers me. Maybe I'm out there on a limb. Maybe we should look deeper into the word. I mean you're into that, right? Like the roots of words and <laughs> True. But yeah, I don't know. Like if you're talking about it it's kind of like if you had I don't know, economic right. terminology and you said, Well, this has nothing to do with money or economics, then it's like, Well, how does that like it 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 has to, it's part of the meaning of the word.
0: Maybe it's just like it has this misunderstood focus on the people part of the definition, you know? Yeah. It's like rule of the people, but they're like, ah, we're just focusing on the first half of the definition. We don't care so much about the rule part of the definition. But my you problem know? is
1: there are other better words for that, right? Like, right. Okay. again, I, distribution.
0: Okay, I can understand.
1: Now instead of centralized, okay. it's distributed. That's such a better way to discuss okay. it.
0: I guess in that regard, I can see why you would be annoyed by it as like a
1: buzzword. I get you. But see, the problem with saying that something's distributed is... One, a lot of people don't really understand what it means. Not that they understand what democratize means, but they don't understand what that means. They just understand democratize means good, better, free, happy. Yeah. Distributed also doesn't have that any of that emotional connotation, so you don't have. Well, maybe that's kind of why they
0: specifically feeling. use that word because of the like positive connotation that it holds.
1: But that's exactly what's annoying. Make things more convoluted and ambiguous in order to procure an emotional response rather than have things be clear and understood. Especially when you're talking about things that are kind of fringe and kind of aren't well understood by a lot of people. You want to make it as Mm. clear as possible.
0: Yeah, I don't think people are focused on clarity. I think they're focused on pushing their agenda. And if they go, hey, this word sounds good. I think it'll get people to be like, oh, that sounds positive. Yeah, like a democracy. We like it. It's good.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that is exactly why they're using it. But yeah, that doesn't mean they should be. I think it's counter to what their goal should be. But I mean, I'm not going to change people's use of words. Like people constantly lean on emotional things when they should be trying to be more clear. As we're going to talk about a little bit later, like uh, Simon Bolivar down in South America, I just finished a book on him. And Mm -hmm. all the way up until very recently, people like the late Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, right? Like his Bolivarian revolution was all based on this guy from 300 years ago. Not because he had anything in common with him, just because there was all of this positive goodwill and emotional hangover from it. I'll take mm-hmm. all the goodwill toward him and just assume all of it. Just like when Republicans say, we're the party of Lincoln. Everybody loves Lincoln. Right. So we're going to be the party of Lincoln, even though we're not really in the same boat as what the Republicans were back in the 1860s. Right. It's just taking all Very different ideologies. Yeah. But it's smart.
0: I mean, they teach people how to appeal to people's logic and emotion and whatever else. But... <laughs> the emotion thing is just yeah. so
1: powerful logic emotion and what? what is the other one it's like ethics yeah what is right yeah sure yeah but no one cares
0: about that people just they know that an appeal to emotion is the most powerful thing and so of course it's like it's so easy to take advantage of that like yeah you know i'm pumped up i'm fired i'm angry i'm happy whatever gets them going is what they're gonna use and it's easy to get people angry and on your side i mean mobs have been mobbing since humans were walking around
1: <laughs> yeah since days memorial. yeah like i don't disagree with you but i think this is why it's so useful and important to push back on these sorts of things because when people are clearly and obviously doing these sorts of things appealing mm. to emotion in a way that is
0: that ignores the other two parts of that very important triangle yeah
1: well and also undermines their own credibility you know what i mean Right. Like people who kind of fudge facts in order to appeal to somebody's emotions. Like the party of Lincoln thing, where it's like, yeah. we don't really support anything that Lincoln supported. And our party's been completely transformed since then. We're going to do this. Like, it it destroys the credibility of the people that say it. Right. It's hard to stomach.
0: Yeah. My coworker used to do that a lot, too. Lincoln was a Republican. I'm like, okay. The same way those, like, Dixie Democrats are... Democrats like the people that are Democrats today. I right, can get you, it's Dixie Democrats existed
1: before socialism was a concept. Right, so <laughs> right. you know, like FDR brought in that socialism; it changed everything. So yeah, right. These things change over time. They don't change as much in other countries as much as they do in the United States because the United States is so steadfastly a two-party system that those two parties just dance around in circles. But mm. yeah, so democratization. Do me a favor, guys. Don't use it to mean distributed. Use distributed, because that's what it actually means.
0: And if you don't use the word, then, you know, just keep not using it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On lighter matters, I was listening to NPR the other day, Mm. and they were talking about this lady. And I've been wanting to talk about this, and there's no real discussion behind it. I just... I was so fascinated. She recently passed away and she was a commentator for sumo wrestling. Oh, right. And she was like this English lady who I guess started watching it or she saw it sometime when she was in Japan and she just like fell in love with it. And apparently she had been like commentating for it mm. for like the last 30 odd years or something. It's a long and time. She, I guess she just recently passed away if I didn't already say that, which I probably did. And so, they were talking about her and they're, like, commemorating her. The idea of some posh, because they were, like, showing clips of her talking, she did seem very, like... Proper. Yeah. Just, like, in love with this random sport in Japan of two big guys bull rushing each other to get the other one out of a ring. And then falling in love with it so much that she was like, yeah, I'm going to follow this and be part of the whole culture of it. And just do it until I die is so fascinating to me that I just wanted to bring her up and be like, yo, Doreen Simmons, she was a person.
1: All right, all right.
0: Yeah, super <laughs> hilarious to me.
1: Pay her a little homage. Yeah, no, it is yeah. a bit bizarre, isn't it? Why were they talking about this on NPR?
0: I have no idea. You don't even
1: remember I the actual don't story. Remember.
0: I was so just thrown aback by it that I was like, what, what's going on, who? <laughs> and apparently she even was awarded the highest honor, someone who's not part of the military or government could receive in japan
1: oh wow yeah yeah, it's interesting i was wondering if this had something to do with in the last few weeks there's been this big controversy with sumo wrestling because Mm -hmm. one of the i think it was one of the wrestlers got Uh injured and several female doctors or nurses or something from the audience came out to try to help him and the Uh referees ordered them out of the ring because they're not allowed to have women in a sumo wrestling ring Uh uh-huh and so they were trying to go in to like save this guy's life, and they wouldn't let them in to come save this guy's life because they're not allowed to have women in the ring. And so I was wondering if this had something to do with that because there's just been this huge hoopla because it's it's been interesting looking at Japan of late because they are a very, not macho, but very uh, male-dominated culture. They're extremely mm-hmm. unequal between mm-hmm. men and women in terms of the power dynamics and everything, but they've been largely untouched by the Me Too movement. But mm-hmm. recently they've been having a number of things come out Just people are more willing to push back against the male-dominated parts of the culture than they had been before. So this thing came out, and I was just wondering if it was that, but probably not.
0: Yeah, I think maybe it was just because she passed. Oh,
1: yeah. I guess it could could just be (laughs) that.
0: NPR is weird sometimes.
1: NPR is very weird. talk
0: about really obscure things. Yeah. Yes. They do. So maybe they're just like, oh, this lady, nobody probably
1: knows about her. Let's bring her up. That's what actually drove me to stop listening to NPR so much because it was like, these stories are so obscure. So obscure. (laughs)
0: Listen
1: to us talk about this thing
0: that no one cares about.
1: There is a man (laughs) on a farm in Nebraska, and we're going to go interview him for two and a half hours. That is NPR. Riveting. Yes, really. I mean, great production, great production quality and everything. Really often very interesting, compelling stories, but it's like not useful (laughs) or pertinent to my life.
0: John, you and I both know how much you love capitalism.
1: I think love is a strong word. I don't think it is. But I'm I'm a proponent. I am a proponent.
0: Yes, you are a, a big proponent of capitalism. Yes. So someone who argues for it and defends it and believes truly in the best in capitalism. I just kind of wanted to get your ideas on what the cons are. Like what negative impacts does it have on society? do you think. As much as you like it, I'm sure you see flaws in it. Yeah. Especially recently because you know a lot of people are like, "Oh, capitalism's the worst. Like true. we're all like getting crushed under giant corporations."
1: A really big backlash against in the last decade, that's true. Yeah,
0: and so I'm just wondering like what do you feel the negative impacts are? What are some of the cons? in capitalism
1: well i think it's hard because it's such a strong system Uh and it's also difficult because discussing something like capitalism i think you really have to decide if you're going to talk about the economy as it is today or if you're going to discuss the concepts theoretically right because capitalism is fundamentally based upon rights of free exchange and property rights Right, and so like free markets and property rights are kind of the core foundational components of it, and mm-hmm. those things don't presuppose any of the major controversies that have happened over the last since the depression, right? Like all of the stuff that happened in two thousand eight, none of that stuff really relates to the core foundations of capitalism. It relates to to a number of things that are higher up the stack and more complicated and more removed from the core fundamentals. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of look at it. From the core fundamentals and from the reality of the situation. Okay. So to start with the core fundamentals, there are a couple problems. One is that what capitalism really does is it incentivizes people to do things that other people think are valuable. Right. So if you are standing in front of me and you want me to give you money and I really want you to shine my shoes and I don't want you to cut my hair, well, then I'm going to pay you to shine my shoes. And you don't have a choice of what to do because I'm only willing to pay you for one of them, right? Right. So... It, to a certain respect, it limits people's potential. Like it's it's great, it's strength is that it pushes people toward things that are productive, but it, that's mm-hmm. si- simultaneously the weakness because it pushes people not necessarily towards things that they want to do, not necessarily things that they enjoy, but things that other people want them to do. Right. So that's, that's, a, that's a positive and a negative. But the other thing that this does is it focuses a lot of people on... Short term things and when i'm when I'm talking about mm-hmm. short term i 'm not even necessarily talking about what the common complaints are about the stock market and how public companies are focused on next quarter. I mean right. it focuses people on the next decade, the next twenty years, right. the rest of their career. Mm-hmm. Very few people are going to pay attention to things that are going to affect the world or the country in a hundred years mm. and there's no mechanism within capitalist structures to correct for things like environmental change. I think that's probably the most fundamental weakness of capitalism that huge societal problems require individuals who are self-interested to put aside their Mm self-interest because the society requires it. And so when you see things like climate change, you need people to set aside their benefits of higher productive capacity in the next 10 or 20 years in order to make sure that the society survives 40 or 50 years down the line the market mechanism doesn't work very well with that right and i mean this is partially an educational thing that if people know mm-hmm. enough like if consumers are well enough informed about what's happening and what's causing it then they can right solve these sorts of things but it's not naturally done like you almost have to make an additional mm. effort beyond what the normal market mechanisms would cause because no one personally is like Uh oh it global warming it's making my life worse right like there's no direct connection between oh this tire manufacturer is more efficient in terms of their energy and so i'm gonna go with them even though they're more expensive that's not a direct connection between anybody buying tires right so that that i think is the biggest fundamental weakness
0: okay and so looking at it that way with what's going on in the world how do you think it affects society now negatively
1: right so more from a more practical standpoint in terms of how it is in the world mm-hmm. i think what capitalism often causes no it doesn't cause this but what what often happens in capitalist societies is that yes
0: the word it carefully <laughs> well, capitalism yeah. is good people well I, like
1: it's important to be accurate and correct right to use the words properly okay. so i think state capture and regulatory capture are a real problem Mm-hmm. and what those mean is that a company or a person kind of takes control of the rules right so right. you might see like exxon Mobil goes to the government and says we want you to make the rules around oil refining so that we're the only people that can do it really well and do it cheaply and so they contort things or they push government officials toward contorting things in such a way that competitors can't come in and other people are disadvantaged and that get them extra profits and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now this is a natural thing for them to do, but it's difficult because for a capitalist regime to function effectively, like I, I talked about the two fundamentals, right? Of property rights and free exchange, but there is a third mm-hmm. one, which is the consistent rule of law. And if the rule of law breaks down, like it's, it's interesting if you look at the post Soviet republics after the fall of the Soviet union, and you uh-huh. look at Russia particularly. They had everything they needed in order to come out and be much wealthier and be much more successful as a country after the fall mm-hmm. of the Soviet Union. They reformed in a number of ways which should have been beneficial. But you see, if you look at them, that they have not been nearly as successful as Poland, for instance. And that's because mm-hmm. Poland, in their pursuit of joining the European Union, embraced the rule of law and has pretty consistently enforced the rule of law. Now, there have been some hiccups recently, but they treat people equally for the most part within their country. If you look at Russia, what they've done is they've written so many rules and such kind of impossible to follow rules that every company pretty much in the economy is breaking rules. And so the regime can then choose to enforce the rules selectively. And if you do things that they don't like, You had to break the law in order to run a business there. So you get thrown in prison or you get forced to sell your company. And so they have not grown nearly as rapidly as some other countries in Eastern Europe. And they have not done nearly as well. And and it's because they have the lack of rule of law. So you you see this this problem that you need the government to stay separate from the economy. There needs to be a division Mm -hmm. there. In the same way that in the U.S. we have that division between church and state, you really do need a division between economics and state or business and state. But Mm -hmm. it's difficult to have that as companies get more and more powerful. Right. And this is actually one argument for kind of more libertarian type government because one of the big arguments around this is that if the government has less power, people will not pursue the government as much to get it to manipulate things in their favor. Mm Mm-hmm the amount of money that the government has to hand out or their importance in terms of choosing who wins and who loses in the economy really does Uh affect how much people will go after them and lobby them and try to get them on their side. Right. Does that make sense? I mean,
0: yeah. But I think even if a government were smaller, there would still be regulatory bodies and those could still be bribed or lobbied.
1: No, absolutely. Here's the question though. At a certain point, as a businessman, you have to think, Uh Well, am I going to focus my time and energy and money on trying to make better things Mm. and follow the rules as they are? Mm -hmm. Or am I going to try to spend my efforts and money on convincing the government to change the rules in my favor? And the less power that the government has, the worse the investment in changing the government's rules seems to be. Mm -hmm. Like you look at tech firms now investing millions and millions and millions of dollars into lobbying. Right. That's only worthwhile because the entire industry relies upon government structures. The internet formed from the government, it is still tightly kind of controlled by the government. Net neutrality, right. things like that, those are dictated mm-hmm. from on high, and they mm-hmm. completely determine whether or not a company like Netflix is enormously successful or collapses. And that's the sort Fine. of thing where... You have to lobby. It's not even like they're choosing to, they have to, because if they lose this fight, that could mean the end of their business. And that's the sort of thing that you don't want to have. If these rules were kind of set in stone and they had principles behind them in the way that we have principles underlying a lot of things within our constitution in terms of like the Mm -hmm. first amendment, the second amendment, where you have freedom of speech, that is universal. That's not something that you're going to lobby the government on. So it's not an issue. Mm. You don't even think about lobbying the government. Like if you're a newspaper trying to censor another opposing newspaper because you know that's not going to happen. The government's not going to do that for you. So it's a right. waste of time and energy to do that. If suddenly it's not a waste of time and energy and you might convince them, well, then suddenly it makes a lot more sense. And you have to fo- refocus yourself on True. the government rather than focusing on the market. And and so that's that's right. an issue. Yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your questions kind of succinctly or I'm definitely not answering succinctly, but...
0: No, no. But I mean, I guess you're looking at the pitfalls, but you're also being very careful about the answers, I guess. Because, you know, you don't want to blame it on capitalism if people take advantage of the system.
1: Well, because fundamentally, capitalism is Mm -hmm. a simple thing. What people are looking at as the problems are the problems of people, not the problems of capitalism. Right. And so if you look at it and you say, oh, well, this company, like you look at Enron, right? Enron mm-hmm. was fraudulent. If you guys don't know what Enron was, they had a huge accounting fraud. Or you look at like Bernie Madoff and his huge Ponzi scheme, right? Where he basically mm-hmm. took in money and kept giving that out to other investors and just basically lied to people about investing returns. That's him lying. That's him committing fraud. That's not capitalism. That has nothing to do with like capitalist rules or capitalist structures. That just has to do with somebody lying and cheating people. And that was mm. illegal, which is why all those people got arrested. But it was also like if somebody in another type of regime, if somebody in a socialist regime or a communist regime or an old aristocratic monarchy or something like that, if they chose to lie and cheat and steal, well, they could do that, too. And that that's just what people do. Like it's, it has nothing to do with the rules of the system.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: That's fair. The last flaw maybe I'll mention that a lot of people focus on is inequality. Actually, I was going to just ask you about that. Yeah. You beat me to the punch. (laughs) I think it's kind of the looming one. I have trouble with inequality because I don't think most people really think inequality is bad fundamentally. Sure. Nobody thinks that somebody sweeping the floor of a building should make the same money as somebody who designed the building.
0: Probably not.
1: Yeah, very few people think that everyone, no matter what you're doing, should be paid exactly the same. And that's because people produce different amounts of value. Right. If I design a car for, let's say I work for Ford and I designed a car, I probably created more value than somebody who just screws a screw onto a wheel in a factory. And that's all they do all day. I probably created more value for them. Right. But capitalism creates a great deal more inequality than that. And... As technology continues to advance and as markets get larger, Mm -hmm. uh, that inequality continually increases. Like if you look throughout history, inequality was worse before the Industrial Revolution when you had the landed aristocracy and you had like the French monarchy just ruling over everyone with all of their pomp and wealth. But Mm -hmm. once the Industrial Revolution started, inequality didn't decline at any point throughout the development of it. Until recently, actually. Worldwide inequality has been dropping of late in the last mm. decade or two. But that's not helpful in wealthy countries because inequality in wealthy countries has been growing. It's just that the global poor have become a global middle class. You look at China, you look at Vietnam, you look at Thailand, Malaysia. Right. They're now middle class people. They're now earning ten, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 a year as opposed mm-hmm. to the U.S. or... Europe, where middle-class wages have stagnated, and the wealthy have continued to get wealthier. Mm-hmm. But inequality as a whole has kind of stabilized in the last few decades. That being said, it's a natural thing that as technology advances, inequality will increase. And that has pretty much always happened as technology has advanced since the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. And people don't like this. right? I, I think... There is a morality to inequality that I don't fully understand because everyone, like I said, everyone accepts that there will be some inequality, Mm. but people don't like how much there is. Right. Because I
0: think most people's concern isn't that a janitor should make as much as the guy who built the building he's cleaning. I think it's just like, oh, a janitor should be able to afford rent or afford to buy a small house. Right. Or something. Just they should be able to not struggle and barely make it on the like tips of their fingers.
1: Yeah, I, I do think you're, yeah, you you get to a good point in this where there, there are two sides of inequality that people are really annoyed by. One is the bottom mm-hmm. side where some people are really struggling or some people can't get a job at all and then they're just squalid, right? right? And capitalism with no safety net at all leaves no provision for poor, incompetent people, right? Like if you have somebody who is mentally challenged or something in a truly lean government capitalist society, Mm. they aren't provided for by the Mm. state or anyone. There's no guaranteed safety net. Now, in practice, those people generally are supported by charities and religious groups and things like that. So it's it's not like the Salvation Army was a government entity. You know what I mean? Like the Salvation Army Mm -hmm. feeds and clothes and helps tons of people independent of whatever the government system is. They exist in in capitalist countries long before social security existed or welfare or anything like that. But you do have that struggling of the people at the bottom. And then you also have the extraordinary wealth of people at the top. Hmm. And this bothers people substantially. Fundamentally, I think the problem is that people feel that is entrenched and that is a result of the government policies. Mm. And it's not a natural thing. I I think that's kind of the feeling. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think a lot of people look at tax policy and a lot of people look at, you know, tax write-offs for wealthy people and for companies and how capital gains taxes are lower than income taxes. And they Mm -hmm. say, well, the system is set up to make the rich richer and to make the poor poorer. If you had a system that was simpler and clearer it would work better mm-hmm. for everyone. Like, I'm I'm not sure that this is fundamentally a problem with capitalism. I think people look at it as a problem with capitalism.
0: Well, I think it's hard to disassociate the government with the market system that we use. Because generally, they treat those things as the same, right? They go hand in hand.
1: Well, but they are very different. Right.
0: I'm not saying that they aren't different. I'm saying that's how people treat them. Right? They, they treat them as the same thing. Right. right, Because, I mean, that's been a Cold War that lasted 40 years was all about democracy and really what they meant was like capitalism and then yeah. communism and totalitar- totalitarianism. I can't say it.
1: Totalitarianism.
0: Totalitarianism. Oh, my goodness gracious. I cannot pronounce anything today. <laughs> <laughs> and so, those things become... Permanently associated with each other.
1: You're right. But whatever the government does in terms of taxes and supporting the poor and infrastructure investment, like that is independent of the principles of capitalism. So that should be a completely different conversation.
0: No, I understand. But what I'm saying is that people don't disassociate those two things.
1: Right. No, they don't.
0: They don't see, you know, those laws being made and go, oh... That's the government that go, this is just part of capitalism poisoning the whole world. Sure. No, what they think, but they and definitely
1: enslaving all of society. Yeah.
0: Right, they definitely compare those two things as like inherently connected and in that one doesn't happen without the other.
1: A lot of people do believe that no democracy can truly exist without capitalism and a lot of people do believe that capitalism can't truly exist without democracy. So, mm. yes, a lot of people do view these as kind of intrinsically intertwined. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like capitalism is what creates the wealth, right? It's what drives society forward. And the government right. is what determines who benefits in what proportion from that, mm-hmm. right? So they're obviously intertwined in a, to a certain respect. But right. really, conversations around big government, high taxes, small government, and little regulation, right. things like that, those are separate from the economic system. But let me just say the complaints that people have about government policy as it relates to capitalism and as it relates to inequality, I think Mm -hmm. are moderately justified. Mm -hmm. And it's because in the United States and throughout most of the rich world, there are a number of subsidies for wealth. There are a number of wealth subsidies. Uh Like a lot of people have been talking over the last decade about a wealth tax to kind of fund a Uh a basic income or fund any other policies that need funding but we actually have wealth subsidies. And right. I do think that that exacerbates inequality and it does make it more difficult for the poorer 30, 40% of the population to progress mm-hmm. into the upper echelons. And these subsidies largely revolve around low capital gains taxes that I mentioned before and around mm-hmm. supports of individual home ownership and like mm-hmm. mortgage tax credits and Fannie Mae's insuring of all of our mortgages and like that whole reinsurance thing. There are a number of supports that make people who own houses much wealthier than they would be otherwise and like boost house prices and things like that. Right. I think that if you removed those, you would have less inequality and it would be easier for people to move up and down in society. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, the way people produce value has very little to do with that, that that is what we do with the stuff once it's created, what once right. we create wealth for the society, that's deciding right. who gets it. The determinations about how we create wealth. I don't think uh-huh. are really arguable around capitalism. And I know I was supposed to be right. like pointing out the pitfalls of it, but I, I think it's important to make mm. that distinction, how things are created and what you do with them after the fact right. are fundamentally different. It's kind of like arguments mm-hmm. around guns, right? Like creating guns is not necessarily a bad thing. They are necessary for the military. They are necessary for the police. They are useful in hunting, but what we do with guns and who we allow to have guns and where we put guns is highly questionable. So like creating the thing Mm -hmm. valuable, what you do with it after, that's a more difficult Mm. quandary. And that's where I think capitalism runs into problems. It's an extremely effective system Mm -hmm. of production and allocation of resources. It provides no answers for what we do with things after things are produced. Or, like, who should benefit and who should gain wealth from this great system of allocation of resources and production of wealth. So, I think that's what should be taken away. That, like, really, the problem with capitalism is that it only provides answers in certain respects. Right. In certain areas. And people seem to extrapolate it out to mm-hmm. answering everything in the world. It doesn't. It's a narrower thing than people okay. really think about it as. Okay. Well,
0: while we're on the subject of narrower... narrower,
1: Narrower?
0: Oh. Okay, so... I, I just can't talk today on the subject of narrower things. You're doing well. You're doing well. Fifth time's the charm. I know that you wanted to talk about single issue voters.
1: I did. I did want to talk about single issue voters. I'm curious because... I've found wildly varying opinions mm-hmm. when I talk to people about these things. First, just, I think, oh, everybody knows what single issue voter is, but it's essentially somebody who only cares about one thing and they will vote on that and they will kind of lobby about that. So you see this a lot with people who are abortion voters that really want abortion banned or gun rights voters that will only vote for somebody if they support the Second Amendment mm-hmm. or something like that. What are your thoughts oh, on single issue it's I think it's dumb. <laughs> okay, why? Why is it
0: dumb? And I understand... That if it's the one thing you care most about, maybe you'll be happiest if the thing that you care most about is kept intact or the thing you hate the most is banned. Whatever it is, whatever their, their motivations are, if that's the thing sure. they care about the most and it gets, you know, addressed and goes in their favor, they're happy. But I think that just ignores other factors when they're voting or making decisions that will also have an impact on them, that might have a bigger impact on them that might be more crucial to the quality of their life. And I think if you're only focused on one big issue and you ignore other issues that might be just as pertinent to you in favor of the one thing because you want the one thing, I think it's not a smart way of voting. I I don't think it's like a very critical
1: way of thinking about the decisions you're making. I think that that's the widespread thought about single-issue voting. Because it
0: just seems cavalier, you know, like, ah, more guns or... Pro-choice or saving the environment. Ha ha, we're doing that. Whatever it is.
1: I do agree with you that for some things, like the abortion debate, right? If if you're a single-issue voter about abortion and you just want abortion to be banned, that is a questionable stance. Or if you're just pro-life and you will only vote for somebody who's pro-life, right? Like, that is a questionable stance because there are a lot of other things that will affect society as a whole, perhaps, in a mm-hmm. more dramatic way. But I, I I struggle with this because I think that voting is operating with a big club. You don't have a lot of options. You can't pick and choose what you want. So if you are somebody like me who largely disagrees with certain aspects of what both Republicans and Democrats in the United States have stood mm-hmm. for for a long time, and there would be no successful candidates who support some of the things I believe— Like, you have to give up some things, right? And when you're voting with this club, because you can't choose issue by issue, you have to make a cost-benefit analysis. But I do think that there are some things that are so big and so important that they kind of Mm -hmm. override this. Like what? So what made me think about this was I was watching a clip from Bill Maher's show Mm -hmm. recently and he was just lambasting people about their lack of environmental awareness and about their nonchalance toward the dangers Mm -hmm. of it. And he does this all the time. Like he's far from a kind of single issue voter type of person, but like this is one of the kind of core things that he really fights on. And what it made me think about is I wouldn't blame him if he only voted for people based upon environmental policy. Because when you look at Mm -hmm. environmental policy, that is the kind of thing – that could wipe out society. Right. So that has the potential to be incredibly destructive. And so I could easily see somebody saying, you know what? I don't care if the economy doesn't grow as well. I don't care about gun rights or abortion Mm -hmm. or this whole thing with Russia, with Trump. I don't care about all of that. I just want us not to be flooded and all dead. (laughs) Right? Like... I, like I could see somebody having that stance, and that I think mm-hmm. is reasonable. Likewise, on the kind of other side of the political divide, I think immigration is the kind of thing where, if you look at a country, and you say, "I think that my country is being fundamentally changed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by immigration," it's irretrievable, right? Like, let's say you're a smaller right. country than the United States. Let's say, like, let's just look at Canada, right? Canada has like mm-hmm. thirty, forty million people. If they let in fifteen million people from Let's just say India, right? They have a lot of Indian immigrants. If they had 15 million people coming over from India, the country would be fundamentally different. Half the population would be from India Mm. or a third in that case. But that is the kind of thing that is fundamentally transformative Mm -hmm. and irreversible. And so if you didn't want that to happen, I could see as a single issue voter being like, this thing has the potential to Mm -hmm. truly destroy my country. So in that way, I think I see things that are kind of fundamentally Uh transformative in that way. Like if you're a a single issue voter that you're just like lower my taxes or something like that. Well, that's silly because that's not a fundamentally Mm. transformative thing. But if you are for these sorts of enormously impactful issues, I could see it more. Right.
0: I've never looked at it that way. And, you know, I'm not going to disagree with you, I guess. You know, if it's something that could potentially impact your whole world or the whole world, the literal whole world. Sure. Why not? Right. But I don't think that generally that's the case for people. Okay. And so I guess in those few instances where it is the case, you know, where it is this fundamental change, sure, do that. Do what you're going to do. I just don't think that's largely true for everyone.
1: Sure. I think you're right that that's not generally the thinking for most people. Like most people aren't like, this is incredibly impactful and has an enormous downside Mm -hmm. potential so I'm going to be a single-issue voter for this. Like I think most of the things people are single-issue voters for are not Mm. the biggest things in the world. Yes, and so
0: generally I'm against that.
1: But I don't think from a kind of philosophical perspective, I don't think Mm. it's a bad thing. I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable position to have, especially if you don't care about a lot of other policies. Like If you look at tax policy, for instance, and you say, you know, in the 50s we had high taxes, in the 60s we had high taxes... In the 80s, we had low taxes, and since then we've had low taxes. It doesn't seem to matter a huge amount. We've grown roughly the same rate through mm. that whole span. I don't care. All I want is no immigrants. I could see that. There are a number of issues that are enormous and important. And so if you don't care about a few things and you care about only a few things, sure, I get that. But really, like, even if you're doing something that's cost-benefit mm-hmm. analysis, if something is really, really right. important to you, Like, let's take this whole possibility of Trump Mm. colluding with Russia. I know we don't wade into that very often, but like... He did it, everybody. He did it. (laughs) (laughs) If you believe that he is conspiring Mm -hmm. with a foreign power, and you believe that that is an enormously important thing that could destroy our democracy, I could easily see you saying, I would never vote for a Democrat. I am a hardcore religious conservative Mm -hmm. person but I can't vote for this person for his reelection or what have you, because I think that this is such an important issue that it outweighs the other issues. Not even if you don't care about any other issues, but like it just, it weighs more than that. Right. Like I I think that that is reasonable for Mm -hmm. a lot of things. It just outweighs it.
0: But again, that's what I'm saying. Something like that. I do I, I agree. It is. It's important. I feel like that's maybe worth making that decision. I just don't think it's, True for the most part. Like, I don't think that's how people weigh their decisions of their single
1: issue voters. Like, they're not based on these large fundamental things. Well, how do you think they do it? <sighs> like, like what what is the issue that you find people are most often single issue voters on? Just like basic things that you hear about constantly, you
0: know. Pro-choice and gun restrictions or non-restrictions. Like, I don't think those things are necessarily fundamental to the health of the country or life as we know it. Sure. But those are the things that are most often talked about. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who vote based on those things only. And also, I think sometimes they're sensationalized. Like, people, when they talk about guns, are always like, oh, they're going to ban our guns. They're going to take our guns away. So, you hear people saying, oh, they're going to ban our guns... But the truth is that regulation isn't banning. It's just putting restrictions on certain types of guns or certain people who can have them or not. But that's not where they go to. They immediately go to sure. they're taking things away from us. And that seems ridiculous to me. That if you're
1: going to vote, your decision's going to be based... Well, but you don't actually think it's ridiculous, do you? <sighs> I do. I do. Because, oh, hold on, hold on. I think people that are really strong proponents of gun control want to take away people's guns. Hmm. You're right. I don't think that that's the government policy that would come through if we had more gun restrictive advocates in office. But when you look at the people who want strong gun controls, they do want to eliminate most guns from society. That is what they want. I don't even think it's from society. I think it's from particular areas where
0: a lack of guns makes the community safer. Like red states? (laughs) Taking guns away from Montana or Wyoming or some other Midwest state that doesn't have a large population like that's not going to change anything. It's not going to make it safer. You know, most of those people have guns for hunting. In a city, people might not just have guns to go out on the weekends and hunt. They might just have a gun to keep in their house just in case there's an intruder or to carry personally because they're afraid of getting attacked walking down the street.
1: Right. I understand what you're saying. But I I still think that... I mean, there are a lot of people who want to restrict guns who would eliminate all handguns, right? Like, that is a common thing that people talk about. Strong gun control advocates would not be happy with banning assault rifles. They would be happy with banning all non-hunting guns. Mm -hmm. And if you did that, you really are talking about eliminating, you know, 100, 200 million guns from United States. So like, I I get why people, even though that's not the policy that politicians actually are wanting to pursue right now, they can see down the line 20 years and say, that's where Mm -hmm. people want to go. And so I get why they're like, stop them here. Don't let them Mm. push us any farther. So I I mean, I get that. Granted, you're right. It is sensationalized, but I see why people would look out like that. But I guess what I was going to say about it is when you're looking at abortion and gun control, because you're right, those are the two most polarized Mm -hmm. issues. Both of them, from a certain perspective, constitute the largest or some of the largest killers of society. Right? Like, if you are pro-life and you think abortion is murder, well, then abortion is one of the largest killers in society. I mean, so that obviously you would want to destroy that, right? So, and if you look at gun control, people and you think, well, guns cause an enormous number of deaths right. in our society then you want to control that. So like those are both life and death things that cause millions, depending on your perspective, millions of people to die every year. And so I get why people are extremely yeah, inflamed but about I it, think, even though I, I agree. They're not fundamentally society-ending yeah, But even things.
0: With people who are pro-life, for example, right? I don't think they're taking mm. into account people who can't afford kids, who get pregnant, have a child, or are going to have a child that they can't afford to take care of. That's not like a benefit right. to society. Those people are going to be scared. They're going to be struggling. They might not be able to take care of this kid. could lead to like
1: homelessness. Right, but conservatives are are less concerned with societal welfare and more concerned with protecting individuals. Right,
0: right but then you have two individuals who are now suffering.
1: No, I understand, but if somebody came up to me and said, your life is causing other people to suffer, we're going to kill you now, I would be more than a little annoyed by that you know what i mean maybe scared would be the appropriate response yes scared would be the right word you're, you're right you're right wait what I, would I, do? Somewhat, <laughs> I would be somewhat i would be somewhat unnerved but you know what i mean i understand what you're saying mm-hmm. but you're making an argument for societal welfare and the argument for individual rights is the other side of that you can't just kill someone because it inconveniences someone else That would be the argument, right? Right. This is all beside the point. But, you know, it involves a lot of, Mm -hmm. from their perspective, from pro-life people's perspective, a lot of death. So I I understand why it's such a passionate thing. But this all kind of brings me to this other thing that I stumbled upon recently that I wanted to Mm -hmm. kind of run by you. And I've been thinking about. It's an idea that comes from this new book called Radical Markets. Is it Radical Markets? I think it's (laughs) Radical Markets. Um, All right. Just so everyone knows, I can see John when he's speaking.
0: And he just looked off into the corner, speaking to no one, and asked them if it's Radical Markets. Looked back to the screen and went, yes, it's Radical Markets. Just so everyone knows. I was
1: thinking. I was checking. I was checking the database. In the
0: third person, like a ghost. The ghost John was standing over real John and nodded. Yes, it is.
1: (laughs) He knows all things. He just clarifies for me sometimes.
0: I just wanted to share that because people (laughs) need to know what I know. Uh, uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. It was beautiful. Anyways, go on, Radical Markets.
1: In this book, they have a lot of different ideas around how you can utilize markets in a more robust manner in all sorts of Mm -hmm. parts of society, right? And one of the things that they talk about is the electoral system. So they talk about, and I I might not articulate this perfectly, but they talk about how you could, instead of just voting for a person, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, voting is kind of a very Mm -hmm. blunt instrument. You kind of have to accept a whole package of things. Right. Like, if I vote for a Republican, I might like their business policy, but I have to support their huge military and maybe going to war every 10 years, right? Like, if I support Democrats, I might like their pacifism, but I have to support their welfare or free university or some other policy, right? You don't get to pick and choose. And what they talk about is what if, and I'm going to kind of simplify it a little bit, but like, what if each person, instead of having one vote for mm-hmm. a person. Let's say each person had 10 votes that they could use on different issues. Mm-hmm. One other key component of this is that each additional vote that they used would count... How can I phrase this properly? Essentially, one vote mm-hmm. would count for one vote. But in order to get two votes, you would need to use four oh, of your I own see. votes. And in order to get you know three votes, you would need to use nine of your own votes. So you have a diminishing mm. influence and a given okay. issue right so you have these 10 votes that have diminishing value as you use more of them mm-hmm. on a specific issue and you can use them to vote on any particular issue or let's say you had a representative who would support each side right. of a given issue kind of in a more specialized way That way, people that feel really strongly about something and not very strongly about other things would be able to have more of an influence. So you might have a small minority of people Mm -hmm. who could defend something that they feel really, really strongly about. I found this really intriguing because Mm -hmm. it allows for people to only vote for things that they care about and things that they don't know about or don't care about, Mm -hmm. They can kind of ignore. And it allows you to, if you feel really strongly about something, really put a heavy weight on it. And really push for that sort of thing, so what what are your thoughts on that sort of odd thing? It really struck me because I had never heard of any kind of proposal like mm-hmm. this at all. you know
0: you know that actually sounds pretty interesting, because I think if you are a single issue voter, it lets your mm. vote go to what you care about without affecting other issues that yeah are equally important. I guess it, the importance of the other issues don't really matter, but at least you don't affect those issues,
1: yeah. Well, and if you think about like this last election in 2016, Uh Trump was kind of carried through by a lot of evangelicals who really don't like a lot of aspects of him and Uh his platforms, but they had to take that with everything else. I think you would get very different Mm -hmm. results and very different Mm -hmm. representatives and very different policy solutions if you didn't just have to take a whole basket of things. And just like there are a number of other electoral possibilities that I would support that would give you more representation of minority Mm -hmm. opinions in Mm -hmm. government. This sort of thing, I think, would allow for people who care strongly to have their voices heard more strongly, and people who know a lot in a certain area to speak Mm -hmm. louder in that area. That's true. Also, I think it would change the whole party system. Oh, yeah, completely. And I think that would also be a
0: huge benefit, because I feel that especially now, people are really just fed up with two-party system here in the U.S. and they want something different and I think an idea like that like that concept would be really Mm. effective in not only allowing people who do understand several issues to vote on all the things they care about but it also allows people who don't know much and only care about certain issues to focus on those issues that they do know about or the one issue they care about and it forces the system to change in a really large way and it has an impact on representatives to really listen to their constituents in a way they probably don't have to now.
1: Yes, absolutely. Which I think
0: just benefits everybody. I
1: will just say one thing about the two-party system. Uh Uh-huh. There are potential unforeseen consequences. There is the fact that this will kind of strengthen passionate minorities. right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but one of the values and one of the benefits of the two-party system Uh is that you get extreme stability. Mm -hmm. Even now, with a very unorthodox person in the White House, you have relative stability within the legislature. Right. Because you can't really get radical parties because they only appeal to a few people. Mm -hmm. So you end up having two parties that are generally pretty calm and reasonable and similar to each other and stable. If you go to another system that has a lot of parties, Mm -hmm. you risk...
0: Like those national parties rising up.
1: Yeah. Yes. I mean, Trump's election was extraordinarily unusual. Uh And the fact that it hasn't happened that you have somebody coming from outside of the party system in over 100 years speaks to how rare it is in the the kind of structured system that we have. Right. But you see in other countries like in Greece or like in Italy very recently, no parties won a majority in Italy's recent election Uh a few weeks back. And the parties that won the largest percentage of the vote were these kind of extreme right and extreme left parties that were popular in the North and in the South. Mm -hmm. And if you had a two-party system, they would have been fringe parts of a larger party. Right. But they are the most powerful now because you have this system that has seven or eight parties involved. That's true. And I think especially in the
0: US, you would have weird pockets all throughout the country of really extreme conservatives yeah. and really extreme liberals.
1: Well, and, and the, the benefit of two parties also is that you don't get regional parties, right? Regional parties mm-hmm. are very hard to, like, it's hard to get them to have any sort of significance. Right. Because you need to have a national appeal if you're going to take power. Um, and you see this in the UK, like even though the Scottish national party has done very well in the last decade or so Mm -hmm. they will never rule the government because there's just not enough people in scotland like they just (laughs) they're not a big enough uh area right and they don't really compete in england or wales and and so like regional parties aren't a thing minority parties aren't a thing and that adds kind of stability
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but it makes the government less responsive and less dynamic. Right. So you get that kind of trade-off. Mm-hmm. I have long been frustrated with our system of representation in the United States, but there are some things to support it. It has been extremely effective and stable for several hundred years, much more so than pretty much any other country around the world, right. other
0: than maybe the UK. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I guess I never thought about that mm. with regards to the two-party system. I guess it does kind of keep a lot of more radical idealists in check. Because they have to be part of the yeah. bigger system, the bigger party, yeah, yeah, it kind of falls in line with theirs,
1: and they get moderated. Even like you see somebody like Trump, who has pretty extreme beliefs in certain areas, mm-hmm. he gets moderated to a certain extent by the moderate side of his party, right? So you don't get you know Hitlers who come in with a far right, crazy, extreme party, and they don't have to moderate at all because they just take over with that far right, extreme party. Mm. That moderating effect does definitely have some value, yeah. As I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. I just finished a biography of Simón Bolivar. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, he is the South American revolutionary. He's from Venezuela. He kind of spurred the revolutions of Latin America and ended up fighting all the way around the northern side of uh, South America and down through Ecuador and down through Peru and down into Bolivia And kicked the Spanish out of all of those countries. Nice. And after reading this kind of epic biography, I've been really struck by how tragic the revolutions of South America are. And this kind of deep feeling of how close the United States was to these sorts of things. Like it wouldn't have taken a lot to have the U.S. burnt to the ground in the way South America was. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just thought maybe we could examine why the U.S. came out so well from the revolution Mm -hmm. and why South America was a giant burning pile of rubble after theirs.
0: All right. So, shoot.
1: (laughs) So, I think maybe the most important thing is that the revolution in the United States was pretty brief. Mm. It was telling when I read this biography that just in Venezuela, Bolivar and the other revolutionaries declared independence, got independence and control of the government three or four different times. And each time the Spanish came back through with an army or Spanish supporters came back through with an army and wiped them out. Hmm. And Bolivar each time was like exiled and imprisoned or what have you.
0: Should have just killed the guy.
1: Yeah, they really should have. (laughs) They really should have. He had too many friends that got him out of things. It was funny, actually. One time he got out of... Being imprisoned, and he was just exiled because he had this friend that he knew that talked to the general who had retaken Venezuela. And as soon as he got exiled, he then went right to Colombia and started working on their revolution and, like, <laughs> helped Colombia kind of free themselves up and then took this army that he raised in Colombia and marched down back to Venezuela. <laughs> so, yeah, backfired real quick. Backfired real quick. But with that being said, as kind of resilient as the revolutionaries were down there, and this happened in Colombia as well, I think what happened after the Spanish came back through and retook these places Mm -hmm. is that a lot of the leaders, a lot of the intellectuals, a lot of the people, like when you think about the founding fathers of the United States, you could maybe think of Simón Bolívar, kind of like George Washington, but there are other intellectuals that are necessary, right? Like James Madison, Thomas Jefferson... Mm -hmm. Hamilton, right? Like there are a number of people who were essential in the formation of the country, Benjamin Franklin. And I can only imagine if we successfully declared independence and then the British came through with an army and like burned down a bunch of towns and cities, those leaders of the revolution would have been wiped out. Right. We were never really put down. The revolution was never really finished Mm -hmm. in the way that it was multiple times in South America. And I think that they cut off the head to a certain extent And so when a lot of these South American countries, because you see this with a lot of them, you see this with Lima in Peru, where they drove the Spanish out, and then the Spanish came back through and took it over two or three times. Mm -hmm. You see this in Colombia, you see this in uh, Venezuela, and that really whittled down the educated intelligentsia who could form a country effectively. Uh I think that that was probably the biggest difference that I noted and the key. The other thing is that South America was dramatically more racially diverse right. than the United States at this point.
0: Mm, that makes sense. Too. And
1: so with so many more natives and so many more slaves than North America had, that that added another layer of complication and difficulty mm-hmm. to creating an effective republic afterwards because in the united states slaves were a small enough thing and they weren't very prevalent in the north Mm -hmm. and so they could just kind of put it off to the side and not deal with it right in south america you're talking about half the population or more is native or slave right Mm -hmm. you're probably talking about closer to two-thirds of the population and so you can't just put them off to the side and ignore them right because you can't control them you don't have enough of a population to control them right and so it was just more manageable in the united states i think okay Yeah, I don't know. It was very interesting to kind of see it and see how George Washington went through and was just revered and Uh successful, stepped out of office, retired, and then died. Right. And watching Simone Boulevard kind of fill that role as president of Greater Colombia. This is something else that I didn't know until I visited Peru Uh. and uh, Colombia a couple years ago, that... Ecuador, Colombia, and Venezuela originally were one country. They were all unified. Really? Yeah. And then they eventually disintegrated right after Bolivar died. But he filled that George Washington role very much so, except Uh that everything that he built collapsed. And he didn't have that support. He didn't have the other people that were necessary to form the republic around him. He didn't have that like succession. Not even just succession, but like partners in the formation, Mm, you know? That's
0: true. That's true.
1: As much as it was contentious between people like... Hamilton and Jefferson. Like James Madison and Hamilton. Yeah. Say again? I was just saying what you were saying. Yeah. Like with
0: Hamilton and Adams and Jefferson and all of them, I yeah. guess they all kind of hated each other a little bit here and there.
1: <laughs> there there was a lot of competition and derision between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, right. especially, right? I think that that very much strengthened the formation of the United States. Mm. The Constitution, I think, would not have been nearly as good and effective if people broadly agreed on things. I think the fact that people disagreed so vehemently Mm -hmm. and had such different visions for what the country should be really strengthened it through this fire of compromise. Mm. And when you look at that process, Washington was not instrumental in this formation. No, no. I think
0: he was more of like a cohesive
1: force than he was a creative force. Exactly. He presided over and made sure that no one shot anyone else. Right. That was his role. Whereas in South America or at least in the northern half of South America, you had Bolivar kind of being the only person who was in charge and no one else could challenge him, and there were not cohesive groups that had visions for what the country should be. Right. It was a really sad tale when I learned about it. And I can see why you think it's sad. Because you have this one Mm. individual who is fighting
0: and trying and failing and fighting again and trying and finally reaches success, and there's no system implemented i guess i mean you would know better than i would yeah to keep this new foundation standing after he's
1: gone yeah him and the people around him were not able to put something in place yeah actually yeah let me ask you this something like a third of the population of south america died over the course of the war Mm -hmm. it was like a 20-year war for independence right Mm -hmm. how do you feel about it because the united states when we declared independence it was pretty painless like relatively painless Not that many people died, not that many people had their, like, cities and towns destroyed, Mm -hmm. right? But South America, going through all of that, like, do you think they should have just sucked it up and stayed with Spain? Mm. Because especially with all the terrible things that happened in the years after the revolution, after they got their independence, it's like... I mean,
0: well, it's hard to know. Like, would they have been in if they stayed with Spain? Would it have been better? Maybe.
1: Yeah, that's true. Maybe it's hard I to mean, certainly that third of the population that died during the revolution wouldn't have died.
0: Right. But, I mean, they died for a cause. Or at least I don't know if they were just collateral in this whole situation. Well, I mean,
1: lots of them did obviously die fighting. Right. Not everyone. There was lots of starvation and everything. Right.
0: But if they understood what they were doing, if they understood that there was a sacrifice for what they wanted, I don't think it would have been a better call to leave Spain in power. Hmm. <sighs> If it was mostly collateral, if it was these rebels and some of them died and it wasn't especially terrible, but the majority of these casualties were because Spain was upset and wanted to prove a point, Yeah, I could see why it would not be worth it. That maybe it would have just been best to leave Spain in power and just, just taken the, the loss and left it for what yeah. it would become eventually. But I think if they fought and they died and... They starved and it was based on decisions they made.
1: I mean, they knew what they were doing. Yeah, but I don't think anyone at the start thought that they would be in a 20-year grind with everyone dying around them and their countries destroyed. I don't know. It's an interesting thing because I struggle with this idea around whether or not you should fight on the principle or be very wary of the destruction that that fight will cause, right? Like Mm. not even winning the battle if you win the battle, that's great. Right. But the fight to win the battle could be so destructive that sometimes I think it might outweigh the gains. Like I remember very distinctly, I was talking to someone I know from South Africa Mm -hmm. who is colored, which essentially means that they're a blend between Europeans and Africans Mm -hmm. generations and generations back. Right. So under apartheid, they had essentially no rights, Mm -hmm. but I remember him telling me like he didn't come from a, Super bad situation. Like, there were obviously some South Africans that came from a very, very bad situation. Right. But I remember him telling me, in no uncertain words, that he wasn't particularly against apartheid because he thought that at the point where you removed the apartheid system, the people that would take over, you wouldn't necessarily have reasonable people running the country mm. to benefit the country. Right. And he was afraid that. The economy would collapse and the currency would collapse and it would be good for justice. But the destruction that you would see in terms of the country and the potential for like racial conflict and just like a race war right. and things like that, that he didn't want to see the whole country just ripped to shreds. Mm-hmm. Mm. He he saw that as too big of a cost to pay to like write things. Mm. And I, I struggle when thinking about that because obviously it's a really bad situation when you're looking at apartheid or you're looking at Spain's rule over South America. These are pretty brutal, terrible regimes. Uh-huh. But how much suffering and destruction are you willing to bear in order to rid the world of these regimes or rid your your country of these regimes? Like it, It's a hard question to answer. Right. Because it's not going to be painless.
0: Mm. I think also for you to think about it, it's easier because you're looking at it After the fact, after it's happened.
1: That's true. Right. (laughs) That's true. It's much easier. Yeah. Yeah. They
0: don't know. They didn't know. They just were optimistic. I don't know when their revolution started. I don't know if there was any inspiration taken from what was going on up north.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I believe it was around 1810 that the revolution kicked off. It was right around when Napoleon was invading everybody in Europe. Right. right? And so they're only examples of revolutionary regimes Were the united states Mm. which went pretty well Mm -hmm. france which there was a lot of destruction but the revolution went easily right the regime was not able to fight against the revolution very effectively right and haiti where i don't think it would go well from the perspective of like white south americans who you know don't want the slaves to rise up and murder all of the white people like happened in haiti but again the revolution was never put down. It was never really fought against in an effective manner.
0: Yeah. Well, I could see how they may have been pretty optimistic about it.
1: Yeah, it's true. From their perspective, I could easily see like, oh yeah, we're going to finish this off and Spain won't ever be able to fight against us.
0: But they didn't take into account how desperate Spain was to keep their colonies.
1: I think also South America could have done it better.
0: Were there a lot of like loyalists in South America? A lot of Supporters of the crown.
1: Even reading this biography, I don't know well enough. I would. I want to read more history because I really don't know much of the context. Right. I know that in Ecuador and in Peru, there were certainly pockets and large pockets mm-hmm. of uh, royalist supporters. Mm-hmm. So, yes, but at the same time, there were simultaneous revolutions, pretty much at the same time as Venezuela, in Colombia and in Mexico and in Argentina, and so. You got to think that the disillusionment with the Spanish regime was pretty widespread if Mm. all of these things happened simultaneously across all of Latin America. Right. That may be true. Yeah. like I I don't think that there were huge swaths of royalist supporters, certainly not in Venezuela and Colombia, Mm. more so in Ecuador and Peru.
0: Well, just because you were talking about how there is Spanish supporting armies, not necessarily Spanish armies.
1: Yeah. There was this weird part that I don't fully understand where there were a lot of natives and African slaves Mm -hmm. who formed this enormous army of people because they hadn't yet freed the slaves in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And so these guys marched through and were just burning towns and like killing off all the white people in every city and town. And it's unclear to me if they were really crown supporters Mm -hmm. or if they just were against their rulers which were like the white south americans right i'll
0: see i mean i guess when you're talking about this thing they should have definitely taken that into consideration do we want to leave these people somewhere where they could possibly be against us they should have been telling them spain is keeping you down just as much as they're keeping us down join us and we promise freedom and equality and they could have probably had a huge army backing them and it could have gone a lot smoother and gone a lot quicker
1: Right. And and you do see when Bolivar was kicked out of Venezuela that time, Mm -hmm. he then came back and he freed all the slaves. He came actually back from Haiti with an army of black people from Haiti at his back to combat these people and then proceeded from then on to try to free and integrate all of the slaves throughout Latin America. That became a cornerstone of his guiding governmental philosophy. Ah. But like you see this in South America in the same way that you saw in North America, that rich landowning slave owners, like in the South of the United States Mm -hmm. did not want to have all of their slaves freed and no one knew what would happen, right? Because you've had hundreds of years of this structure of society and you're talking about not only having a revolution from Spain, but all of these rich white people don't really want to have their entire social order ripped apart. Right. So, you're not going to have the support of all of the Creoles if you do that.
0: Right. But I mean, if you have the numbers, you can raise an army. If the system falls apart.
1: Sure. Well, because you're even
0: saying that. But I think such the, a large... that
1: this is the issue, right? At the start, they thought they could do it without that mm. being an issue. And it was only once that became an issue that they saw, oh, we have to change. Right. And by then there was tons of destruction and death and everything had gone awry. And this is why I say was so lucky. If you look at a number of the southern states at the point of the American Revolution, a lot of them had large, large minorities of African slaves. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that and you say, well, if the government of Great Britain had decided, okay, we're going to try to free all of these guys and put them together into an army to fight against the colonists, well, they probably could have done that pretty effectively. And this is how close, I think, the American Revolution, like a hair's breadth from completely collapsing. Like if that sort of thing had happened, if we had gotten dragged into a deeper, deadlier, more destructive conflict, there's no way that we come out kind of the shining, stable democracy that we did.
0: Right. I can see that. I mean, I think a big part of it is just how much they underestimated slaves. Sure. You know, when you read some of the writings of the time, they basically really consider like African slaves almost not the same as real human beings that can't think.
1: Like livestock.
0: Yeah. And so I can see how if it's not clear what this army of Native American and African slaves in South America was doing, it's possible Spain sent people out there to whisper in their ears, oh, you know, they revolted, but they left you here.
1: They were declared as supporters of the crown, but it's unclear to me exactly like what Spain promised them if Spain actually promised them anything or if it's just unclear to me, the circumstances, right. But they were supposedly supporters of the crown, but as soon as they were kind of more victorious, they kind of turned against the crown. So it was, you know, right. I, it, it's a very convoluted, complicated
0: situation. Cause that to me sounds very easily like Spain maybe went out there to rile these people up, not necessarily in support of them, but definitely to rise against these rebels. Like that to me seems possible, and maybe, yeah, no,
1: I think you're right. Yeah,
0: maybe England just didn't have the kind of foresight or didn't believe that they could use slaves or talk to slaves or rile them up and have them as a resource against the rebels then because maybe they just didn't think about them that way. Like they were like, Oh, you're not like real people, we can't get you to do things.
1: Yeah, maybe,
0: or something like that.
1: I don't, I don't know. I think really the distinction. In terms of that, it comes down to the UK and their empire has always been more practical. Mm -hmm. Like Spain, during this whole conflict, was essentially willing to burn all of South America to the ground in order not to be kicked out. Right. I don't think England was prepared to kill all of the colonists in the 13 colonies and burn all of it to the ground in order to maintain control. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of practical nature and more almost reasonable nature, like this is a war to determine who's going to control North America. It's not a war to the death. It's not total war right? where we're going to destroy everything. Okay. And in South America, it really was much closer to total war mm. where people really just wiped each other out. And and that was how Spain also handled, to a certain extent, their colonization of Latin America, right? Like they just were more brutal than the British throughout most of their colonization. And so, like, I guess it it is fitting and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But it's just stark to me the parallels between the revolutions Mm -hmm. and how widely their ramifications and after-effects diverged. Okay. Like, incredibly different. The fractiousness of South America and terrible rule that you had in Venezuela and Colombia and Peru. Like, Peru had 20 presidents in the first 20 years after independence just coup after coup after coup you know that that is the pinnacle of instability Mm -hmm. that's just the opposite of what you had with the u.s where as we've talked about before you had the virginia dynasty or what have you right it was what 24 years of rule from like three different virginian presidents
0: yeah also maybe they just didn't have that charisma their leaders weren't beloved they just saw a vacuum took power people didn't like it someone else took power different set of people didn't like that they took power i mean because you see this all the time when our country goes into some other country and destabilizes the country and then there's this giant vacuum of power (sighs) Um, and someone goes in and people don't like it and other people try to rise up against them or do rise up against them yeah and it sounds bigger in scope to me anyways you're going to Mm. you know different areas with different people yeah culturally and i I understand that they probably all speak the same language you know there's this bigger ethnic diversity and you're trying to get these people riled up and ready to revolt but not everyone's in the same situation it might not be worth it to them
1: also what i said at the beginning where you know all of this intelligentsia dying like the political classes died out And the people that were left were the warlords. Mm. You look at a lot of these South American countries, and the people that were in charge, like at Bolivar's death, were generals. Ah. In pretty much all of them. And That's always a problem. Yeah, I mean, obviously George Washington was a general as well, and he handed aside power at the end. Mm -hmm. But he was surrounded by a whole lot of people who were... Not... They were not generals, but also they were powerful publicly supported people Mm. who were not military people right that transition to civilian rule
0: Mm.
1: from military rule was essential and it just never happened in latin america and i think that's because we had 20 years of war in latin america right 20 years will entrench military leaders much more than you know the few years of the american revolution
0: that's true that's true that's true.
1: It's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't mean to depress everyone, but it's fascinating because I've learned so much about European history over the years. And I know so much about American history during this period of like the late 1700s, the early 1800s. And Latin America was just this complete blank in my mind, I knew at some point during this period they became independent. Mm. And I knew Mexico became independent and then had weird dealings with the French and then got into the Mexican-American War. And I, I understand all of that, how it relates to the United States. But connecting all the dots and filling in the gaps in terms of what happened throughout Latin America during this period, mm-hmm. its really fascinating. It really does complete the image. you know.
0: I do. We do know. We all know. <laughs> all right. In the last episode, we mentioned talking about wild wild country we did yeah but we're gonna do that next episode okay next episode yeah that's when we're doing it we promise we're not total
1: liars just to recap that's a documentary about a religious minority slash cult following this indian religious leader who moved to oregon and did all sorts of weird things it's on netflix if you have netflix take a look it's pretty fascinating if you don't have netflix we'll recap it for you and talk through some of the weirdness of it next episode yeah all right so I guess let's wrap it up. All right. You can find our show notes on subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash three. Mm-hmm.
0: Or you can follow us on Twitter. What? Twitter?
1: Yeah. At underscore WWOTS. Yeah. Drop us a line and I'll respond to you probably. <laughs> yeah. Hit us up. We're always glad to hear feedback and any ideas for anything you guys might be curious about yeah. hearing on the show. And I guess I'll talk to you next week, Mike. Yeah. Talk to you then. You you tired, Mike? No, no. It was just the
0: stretching. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. You seem riveted by uh, by by my my point here. Capitalism is the engine, and government policy. How do I say this? I don't know. Everything else, (laughs) the wheels. (laughs) No
0: let's use a different analogy then yeah let
1: me use a different analogy
0: capitalism is the horse that democracy rides on
1: i don't know no yeah. no <laughs> that's that's good that's good actually <laughs> but uh no no it's, it's kind of like okay